Well, good morning, church family. Grateful for uh, our win team leaders sharing what God's been doing in the teams. And of course, they said it a lot better than I could. So it was great to hear from them. Uh, excited to see what God's doing. And one thing I said to the first service, and I want to just continue to emphasize, is uh, we, we really mean it. If God's put a desire on your heart, um, if there's some way that you know within your set of understanding and experience on how we could be involved in the community, or any of these other approaches that we're taking, uh, these teams are very approachable. Uh, we don't want this vision to be uh, just a vision that I have. Uh, we don't want this vision to be locked up with about 12 people. This vision is most effective when 200 of us uh, move forward in the same direction. There is power in numbers, and uh, we're praying to that end that God would mobilize us as a church in this direction. So if you would, let's move into the Word of God, and let's hear from what God has to say. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're in our third sermon now in this series, The Leadership B Baton. So again, 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to begin by reading the text to you. Paul says this to Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in this suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we look at your word this morning, um, I am reminded and we as a church are reminded that we need revelation from you. We need your words. We need to hear a message from the God of the universe who created truth and absolutes. Lord, this morning as we put ourselves under the word of God, I pray that it would change our hearts, that we would develop the same attitude and mindset of passing the leadership baton as Paul did, and as he passed along to Timothy, and as Timothy passed on to others. We're grateful for your word, and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. As we consider this text this morning, I want to ask you a question. What do you wish to be excellent at? What do you want to stand out in? What is it that you would like to be a marker of your abilities to do? Now, as I think about that, I also have come to the realization that if you want to be excellent at something, a lot of times you have to say, I'm okay with being good or just good enough at other things. It's true. That is a tension that we constantly face. I think about it as being a parent. If I want to be an excellent dad, then I need to be okay with just being good enough at fishing. It's true. Or if I want to be an excellent pastor, I have to be okay with just being good enough at auto mechanics and home repairs. Now, Katie might argue with this a little bit and say I could put a little more effort into those areas, but you catch my point. 
If I want to be excellent at something, I have to settle with being okay at other things. Now the question we have to ask ourselves is, what do I want to be excellent at? Now that's a big question. Well, this morning, Paul is going to give us a very simple answer to that question. He's going to say, out of all the things that you can think of that you want to be excellent at, I can tell you with certainty this one thing is the thing you need to be excellent at, and it is your ministry to Christ, your service to your Lord. That's the simplest answer you can give, right? It, it just keeps things clear. It keeps them focused. Yes, it's, it's good to have a hobby, and, and I want to be decent at the hobby, but I don't need to be excellent at that. If you think about your work world, maybe that next promotion is a promotion you should take. Maybe it's a promotion you shouldn't take. Why? Well, maybe it will complicate your life and you won't have the balance that you want in your life if you take it. Maybe it comes to raising our children. That next extracurricular, that next opportunity that my child has, should I involve them in it? Maybe I should. Or maybe it will be that one more thing that will box Christ out of their life. But when it comes to offering ministry to your Savior, the answer is always the same. Be excellent at that. Pursue that with everything that you have. But here's the problem, and it's a problem that Paul saw in his day. It's also a problem that I see in our day. Sometimes, sometimes, I want to tell you, we get the order of operations all wrong. Uh, we, we passionately pursue excellence in the things where okay is good enough. And we say for the thing where we should really pursue excellence, our ministry to Christ, well, I'll just settle for being adequate at that. But what happens when I take on that mindset? Well, what I've seen is this, low expectations and low energy lead to underwhelming results. Remember in the school days, you had that one class and you said, ah, I don't care if I get a C minus. You ended up getting a D minus. But when you set your mind for a high bar and you say, I am going for an A plus, you tended to meet that standard. Paul's saying in the text this morning, I don't really have room for C minus Christianity that results in D minus Christianity. I'm going to tell you how to get an A+, how to pursue excellence in Christ. Well, for, for Paul, it involves five essential traits. We're going to see these traits in verses 1 through 7. And to unpack these traits, he's going to use various images. Now, images are helpful because they put flesh onto something. They help us to see it better. For example, I could tell you, work hard... Or I could attach it to an image and say, work hard like a farmer. And now that imports a lot of images into our head of how a farmer works hard. So again, this morning, Paul is going to give us five traits, and we will associate these with images to help reinforce them. The first one is found in verse 1, of course. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus 
Now, the first essential trait I want to suggest to you attached to an image is to be like an artesian well. Be like an artesian well. The text says, be strong, and that word causes you to think of someone who is strong and healthy and full of energy. It's a passive imperative, though, which means that we are empowered by God. I don't empower myself. One commentator suggests that Paul intended to show the need for living constantly in the sphere of strength afforded by God's grace. Which, if I was to say that a little differently, you can be strengthened by Christ's grace. Now, this image of an artesian well is my image. Paul doesn't give us this in the text. If you know anything about artesian wells, and I know you guys are experts on these, but, you know, just bear with me for a minute. Uh, They're great because an artesian well does not require a pump to bring the water to the surface. No, you tap into a reservoir, and the positive pressure from the reservoir naturally brings the water to the surface. Now, think about that in the spiritual life. We have, at any time, this unlimited reservoir called Christ's grace. And I don't need a pump to bring that to me. No, when I am tapped into the grace, the positive pressure of God's presence brings the grace to me. Now, here's where we go wrong as believers. Too many of us struggle because either one, we're not drawing from the artesian well, we're not coming to the resource, or two, we're trying to force that which cannot be forced. What we're talking about here is the dynamic called spiritual transformation. Now, I cannot get to spiritual transformation by just sheer well-wishing or determination. The Bible says that over and over again. You can't pep-talk yourself into it. You know, look in the mirror and say, today, I'm not going to say anything wrong. I'm going to go out there and do all the right things. Well, it turns out that when you take on that mindset with spiritual transformation, you end up falling on your face. Or, Here's another dilemma that we create. We come to the artesian well as, at an as-needed basis. We're not regularly, daily, drawing from the resources. Our life spins out of control, and then we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need your strength, but that's not how it works. To get the benefits, the sustenance, the vitality, I must come to it regularly. Now think about this as a leadership principle now. You see, Paul's talking to Timothy, and he's essentially saying to him that a leader must consistently be led and fed by Christ before she or he can ever attempt to lead or feed others. Charles Spurgeon, who is always good with words, said it like this, How was Peter prepared for feeding Christ's lambs? First, by being fed himself, the Lord gave him a breakfast before giving him a commission. You cannot feed lambs or sheep either unless you are fed yourself. I I think a teacher is very unwise who does not come to hear the gospel preached and get a meal for his own soul. First be fed and then feed. 
I commend to you the study of instructive books, but above all, I commend to you the study of Christ. Let Him be your library. Get near to Jesus. An hour's communion with Jesus is the best preparation for teaching either young or old. And let me just go on to say it's the best preparation for any form of ministry. It's the best preparation for your ministry at work, your ministry to the family, your ministry in the community, your ministry within the church. How can I have anything to offer anyone if I first don't go to the artesian well and have my sponge filled up before I can pour it out on others? So Paul begins here because this is where it all begins. I have nothing to offer if I'm not first receiving from my Savior. But he moves into the next idea, which is verse 2. And this is a familiar verse to many. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So the second essential trait, the image that we have for that, is to be like a perpetual trainer. Now, notice how the perpetual trainer thinks. Here we see Paul has four generations of Christians in mind. He's thinking of Paul. He's thinking of Timothy. He's thinking of Timothy's disciples. And he's also thinking of the disciples of Timothy's disciples. That's how the perpetual trainer thinks. They're not an inward-focused person. While they know that they need to draw daily from the strength and blessings of the grace of Christ, they don't get stuck there. They don't make their spiritual life all about their own personal growth and self. No, they think outwardly. They ask the question regularly, God, how might I be used to develop and train another? In fact, Eric Geiger and Kevin Peck argue in their very helpful book called Designed to Lead. It's a book we're reading with the elders right now. They say this, that developing others is deeply connected to what it means to be a Christ follower. Let me say that again. Developing others is deeply connected to what it means to be a Christ follower. They go on to explain, we are Christians because others have shared the gospel with us. We have matured because others have helped to develop us. We are a part of a long and beautiful lineage, a long and beautiful history of Christ followers multiplying. In fact, it's impossible to think of yourself sitting in your chair today or watching online or in the multi-purpose room without the direct impact of another person getting you here. We've all needed a perpetual trainer. We need to be perpetual trainers. So in these verses, Paul highlights, and we can see this in the text, several qualities of the perpetual trainer, the excellent trainer. The first is, he says, that excellent trainers faithfully communicate God's truth. What you have heard from me, right, Paul says. So Timothy, you're not to go out and create your own curriculum, you got to look at the Word of God because it is God's Word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not my words. It's not your words. 
It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to raise a person from death to life. It's God's thoughts about marriage and God's thoughts about raising children and and loving your enemy and all the other domains of life which are most valuable for us and true to us. Not the latest and greatest New York Times best-selling novel or book. So what it means if I want to be a perpetual trainer is that I have to spend time getting to know this. Letting this tell me about myself and about God and about life and everything in between. I want you to notice another quality of the excellent trainer. The excellent trainer has first submitted to the process of being developed before they would ever go out to develop others. Don't get the cart before the horse. I've seen leaders over the years who are excellent at giving out counsel, but not so excellent at receiving counsel. The most mature, wise mentors that I have in my life right now, some of them even up into their late 70s, are still always ready to receive a piece of counsel, to keep growing, to keep learning. Now notice in these first two qualities that that is talking to you about inner leadership, who you are, the things that need to be true of you. You need to submit yourself under the Word of God. You need to take on the posture of the learner and be willing to be developed. And then and only then do you move into the next stages of being a trainer. Now, Paul says, excellent trainers who lead others look for character first. Right? He says, entrust the ministry to faithful men. I want to submit to you today that Christ would take one person of character over 20 people of capacity. He cares so much more about who you are than he does about what you can do. On our country and in our context, we've flipped that script. We've said to ourselves, well, I see the capacity, so I'll build the character then. It doesn't work. And we're seeing a lot of moral failures, aren't we, as a result of it. So start with character. And then you move into this next point. After the excellent uh, trainer has seen the character, then the excellent trainer trains to the person's strengths or capacity. So he says, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. So now Paul is telling Timothy, this is how you bring someone along who has the spiritual gift of teaching. You don't put someone up in front of the church who can't find their words or who doesn't have a strong biblical command of the scriptures uh, or someone who struggles with glossophobia, which means the fear of public speaking. No, you need to put someone up who has the strength and the capacity to do these things. Now you can expand upon that principle, right? Because it's transferable. Good trainers develop people according to their spiritual gifts. Now this is what's awesome about the spiritual gifts. The Bible tells us that every believer has a spiritual gift, which means every believer can be developed. Listen to me, church. No one has to ride the bench in the church of Jesus Christ. Every single believer has potential to do great things for the kingdom. 
Paul goes on about this in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7. He says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in what? Everyone. Not just some. Everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So when you're a developer of people, you're asking yourself the question constantly, how can I help them to unlock their God-given potential? Now maybe you're asking yourself the question today, what is my spiritual gift? That's a great question to ask. And actually today in your Sunday email, that weekly email that goes out that I hope you don't just like erase before you read, we have a link to a spiritual gifts inventory from Lifeway. So I'd encourage, if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, go and start there and go through the inventory. Now, those inventories are not foolproof, okay? For example, if it says that you have this spiritual gift of teaching, but again, like I said, every time you get up in front of a room, you're shaking like a leaf, well, maybe you need to explore that gift a little more. For some people, that means teaching in the sense of leading a small group and not necessarily an upfront, in front of the room kind of context. One of the best ways you can learn your spiritual gifts is to talk with other believers and then to actually serve. That helps you to discover it. And you have a lot of relationships in your local body, but some of the most important relationships are people who are leading discipleship groups, whether it's a Thrive group a women's Bible study group, an Activate group, go and talk to them and say, how do I find my spiritual gift? And if they don't know the answer to that question, I think they know someone that does. So let's continue on in the text. We're looking now at a third trait. Paul says, now be like a resolute soldier. And now we're getting some images that Paul's giving us in the text This first one is in verses 3 and 4. He says, Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. This is one of Paul's favorite metaphors in the Bible. In 1 Timothy 1.18, he tells Timothy to wage good warfare. He speaks of some of his fellow workers in the gospel as fellow soldiers like Archippus and Epaphroditus. But one of the most memorable is probably Ephesians 6, isn't it? When Paul's talking about spiritual warfare, and he tells us about all of the blessings that we have access to, and he equates those to the soldier's armament. So here, he's using this same metaphor. Why does he do this? Well, when you think about a soldier, you think of some awesome qualities. You think of someone who has obedience and and deep loyalty and and bravery. Uh, Marshal Falk, a French general in World War I, commanded an officer, and he said, you must not retire, you must hold at all costs. And so his subordinate speaks back to him, and he says, thus are you saying that we need to stand here until we die? And he said to him, precisely. Now, here's the thing. When you think about soldiering, no one enters into warfare 
without having first considered the possibility that they might make the ultimate sacrifice. That's what a soldier does. So Paul's saying to Timothy, Timothy, you have to be committed. You have to be courageous. You, you need to join the ranks with us of those who are willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And let me tell you, church, in Paul's day, that was a real reality. They were doing ministry under the Neuronian administration. And I also want to say this. I believe in our own time, in the next decades, many of us may have to make that same sacrifice. Are we willing to do it? Now, how do we get that mindset? Well, Paul takes the analogy further. He says that no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So the, the spiritual application is clear. A good soldier of Jesus Christ has a single-minded devotion to their Lord. You've all met people like that who are excellent, right? And, and they're able to block everything out and, and focus singularly on the task. In fact, I would suggest to you that it's that type of mindset that really leads to excellence. Think about the football player running towards the goal. If he's distracted thinking about the, the trophy that he's going to be shining after he scores the touchdown, he might not make it into the end zone. Or you think about the, the surgeon who's performing life-giving surgery. Now, if she's thinking about that second vacation home that she has off in the lake, it might not go well for the person under the knife. Or you think about the singular focus of the mother who's able to block out the demands of the day so that she can go and put her baby to bed and sing a lullaby. You see, it takes that type of mindset to do anything that's worth doing. As single-minded disciples, Scripture tells us we're to live in the world, but we are not to get entangled in the world. We are not to be of this world, right? So if we get distracted, it might result in a dereliction of duty. That's why Paul always talked about his singular focus, Philippians chapter 3. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Church, when it comes to following Jesus, good enough is not good enough. He wants your total devotion. He wants your singular focus. He wants your total loyalty. And Paul's going to go on and reinforce this point again and again. Verse 5, he'll give us another trait attached to an image. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So that fourth essential trait is to be like a disciplined athlete. And when you think of an athlete, every athlete knows that you didn't win if you cheated to win. That's just true with sports. Now, some people lose perspective, and they do cheat because they try to get beyond their physical capabilities. For example, people who use performance-enhancing drugs. But what happens when a cheater's found out? Well, no longer is that person immortalized as one of the greats in the game. They become perpetually known as a cheater. I was just uh, 
exploring this a little bit, I went into my Google search engine and I typed in the name Lance Armstrong. Now, when you type in that name in Google, you know what comes up as a first word to describe him? A doper. In fact, there was a biography, uh, uh, an article summarizing his life in a bio- biographical fashion, and it gave him three um, words. It said, doping, children, and uh, personal life. It all began there with the mistake that he had made. Now, the ancients, when they were thinking about the rules and competition, they, they weren't thinking about performance-enhancing drugs. It just wasn't on their mind. Instead, when they talked about the rules, there was a rule in the Olympiad that when a person was competing, they were required to complete a 10-month training period and then swear an oath that they had done it. Now, you might be asking yourself the question, I mean, why not allow an untrained person or an untrained athlete to show up and compete? Well, their mindset was that what you did leading up to the event was just as important as what you did at the event. So it was the total process of getting prepared and then competing in the event that was on their mind. Now, we don't want to be Allen Iverson-like Christians when it comes to discipline. I don't know if you guys remember that 2002 interview with Allen Iverson where he repeated the word practice 22 times in the interview, and he was trying to defend why he didn't need to practice as long as he showed up to the game. He said, it's not a game. We're not talking about the game. We're not talking about how I performed in the game. We're talking about practice. Over and over, he went on this tirade. We're not to be like that when we think of our following Christ. We're not to approach our couch to 5K experience by literally getting off the couch and showing up to the 5K. He wants his followers to be those who practice the faith daily like disciplined athletes. That involves reading your Bible, praying, getting in fellowship with other believers, ministering to people, telling people about Jesus. We don't want to be standing before Jesus in that last day in eternity when He's evaluating our lives and say, Jesus, we're not talking about the game. We're not talking about heaven right now. We're talking about practice. And Jesus is going to say in response to us, here's the deal. It was all the game. There was no practice. What we did day after day after day mattered. And you didn't follow the rules. We need to be like that disciplined athlete. One more trait, verse 6. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So that, that trait is to be like a hard-working farmer. And what's the farmer like? Well, they're, they're first out of bed. They, they commit long hours to the day. They're, they're constantly toiling between the seasons to get the crops prepared. There's regular disappointments like droughts and early frosts and, and pests and diseases. There's much patience involved in farming. There's nothing instant about farming. In fact, you do a lot of the work and then you just kind of wait for the results to come about while you're working hard all along the way. And here's the thing that I've come to discover about the Christian life. The Christian life is like this, and we struggle with it. 
We do. We don't like the fact that it's like this. Why? Because we live in a microwave time culture. Everything needs to happen right now in our mindset. Why did I have to wait an extra day for that Amazon order? I'm going to call someone and give them a piece of my mind. I can't believe that I put my order in at that restaurant and I had to wait 15 minutes for my food to come out. I'm hungry now. I can't believe I've been praying for something for like a whole week and it didn't happen. Where is God right now? Here's the thing. Maybe God has a plan to instill the character quality called perseverance in your life, which means you're not going to get that prayer answered one week from now. He knows that it's going to take months, even years, for that character quality to be established in you. Or maybe God intends for you to go through that trial. We need to be like the hard-working farmer. You know what farmers don't do when the crops don't come up the next day? They don't quit. They don't despair. They keep farming. They know that after time, that the crops will come up. We need to take this mindset into how we develop others as well. And I don't know about you, but I've worked with some immature Christians, and boy, did they make me pull my hair out. I mean, I was just working with them. I was telling them the right things to do, and they just didn't seem to do it right away. And then I remembered how I was when I was young and immature and growing in Christ, and how hard it was for me to even surrender one area of my life over to Jesus in obedience and to repent of that and to go and tell another person that I needed help to grow. Here's what we need to see, church. Seeds take time to grow. Just like you cannot force the grace from the artesian well to change you any quicker than the process of transformation will work, you can't force a seed to grow any faster than it will grow. What can you do? Well, you can prepare the environment that is most conducive for growth. You can pray with people. You can pray for them. You can open scripture with them. You can call them. You can tell them you love them. You can share good words of counsel. But you can't make them change any quicker than they're ready to change. And it's not you who gives the sunlight. It's God who does. He's the one who energizes the growth. Everything's totally dependent on him. But here's what happens. Here's the beautiful thing that happens when you are patient. Paul says the good farmer gets the first share of the crops. So you've been praying about that thing and you've been praying consistently and obediently towards it. What's the reward? Well, the reward is you watch God work out that situation in your life and then you build this deep and abiding trust in Him because you walked with Him through something that was intense and He was with you the entire way and He changed you and He maybe even changed the situation. Or you're walking with that young, immature Christian And after a couple of years of ups and downs where it seems like they're walking away from Christ, and now they're walking with Christ, that process, that invisible work of transformation sets in, and they're walking with Jesus on their own two feet. What's the reward there? Well, you have this beautiful relationship with a believer that you get to maintain, and you get to take the joy and gratification of watching them grow. Or here, the final reward. 
That day when you stand before Jesus and you hear from his mouth, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what it's all about. That's why in the Christian life, good is never good enough. We have to pursue this with excellence because it's eternal in weight and significance. Church, Jesus desires for you to be an excellent baton passer. Men and women who draw their strengths from him daily. Perpetual trainers, resolute soldiers, disciplined athletes, hardworking farmers. In verse 7, Paul says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And what's his point? His point's this. He knows that you live in a world today where there's this like iron little dome that's forming around your brain because we're just constantly receiving information. We're reading article headlines and becoming experts on things and listen to podcasts and YouTube videos. And, and all of these things just start bouncing off of the brain because we're never taking it in. He's saying, don't be like that with this information. Let it sink into the heart. Ask yourself the hard questions. Am I drawing from Christ's strength? Am I developing others to follow Him? Am I single-minded in my devotion and disciplined in my approach? Do I trust Him while He's producing the harvest? Well, sometimes as you're considering these things, it helps to see the end results of faithful baton passing. So this morning, um, I asked our staff team to reach out to some OVC young people that grew up in this church, and they're literally all over the world today. Uh, and it's going to be a joy to hear how God worked in their lives. And actually, we have someone with us, Ms. Carla Lorig, who had a lot to do with these young people. I remember reading an African proverb that makes me think of Carla. They say, when is the best time to plant a tree? Well, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago, and the second best time is today, right? Well, 20-plus years ago, Carla invested in tons of young people in our church, and I want you, as you think about what's happened in their lives, think about the faithfulness required, the diligence, the trust, but also how faithful God was. Let's take a look. Hi, OBC. We're Corey and Becky Kubin. Uh, right now we're in Virginia and we're getting ready to move back to Romania where we'll be working in sign language Bible translation. Um, I grew up at OBC and the community there has really established me in my faith. And now so many of you guys are partnering in our Wycliffe ministry and really making it happen. We love you guys. My name is Lauren Warren. I used to be Lauren Smith. Uh, I currently live in Jacksonville, Florida with my husband and our new baby. Uh, we serve in youth ministry right now. He's a youth pastor, but we will be moving in May to plant a church south of Orlando. Um, one thing that OBC taught me uh, out of the many things is just the importance of investing in the kingdom of God. Hi everybody, my name is Adam Rowe. Uh, I grew up at Osterville Baptist Church and honestly, it's still the, the church of my heart. Uh, it really is. So. I've been in ministry 16 years now, most of it in student ministry, but I just this month started as the campus pastor at the Lexington campus of Grace Chapel. And I'd say what, you know, what OBC taught me and how it prepared me for ministry was it taught me what the church really should be, that it's 
a family first. It's not a service or a building. It is a group of people who are following Jesus Christ and loving one another. So I love you and I will always be grateful. Hey everybody, my name is James Dager. And as some of you know, uh, my parents are Stephen Jacqueline Dager, who still attend OBC. Uh, my wife and I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and I serve as the production director for Biltmore Church. One of the things that um, has instilled my desire to do ministry are the lessons I learned back in the days of attending and being born and raised at OBC. Um, I remember being a little boy and running around the halls of OBC and just loving spending every second that I could get um, in those halls in the sanctuary uh, and in those classrooms. And I just realized I wanted to do it full time. Uh, but I also learned uh, from OBC and from my parents that ministry can be vocational and volunteer based. What's up, OBC? For those of you that don't know me, my name is Justin Lorig, and I, I grew up going to Osterville Baptist Church, and after I graduated from college, I accepted a job as the middle school ministry director at a church down in Northern Virginia, and it's been a really great experience, and I will always be grateful for my time at OBC and all the ways that you all encouraged me and equipped me for this next season in my life. And uh, I just think back to so many times uh, having that loving community around me to help me grow in my relationship with God and all the opportunities to serve and lead even from a young age. So I will always be grateful uh, for OBC and all that you guys have done to help me grow in my faith. Hi, my name is Miriam Trevelyan. I attended OBC as a teenager and was part of the youth group both as an attendee and also as a junior leader. OBC has really affected how I see um, servanthood and the Bible. It's important values that I brought with me as my husband and I worked in different churches, serving in youth ministry in New Mexico and Southern California, and now back here at OBC. I really appreciated how God has used those things to affect my ministry and how I have been formed by them. Hi, OBC. It's Matt Lounsbury. Currently, I live in Minnesota, and my day-to-day -day ministries entail living life with people. Uh, it's the basic things that I've learned from OBC and how uh, being a part of people's lives and showing the love of Christ day to day helps them come to know Christ. We're active members in our church and I learned those things from OBC. 